We're just seven weeks away from AJC Global Forum. You don't want to miss the live AJC Passport recording there. Register today to join us in Washington, D.C., June 2nd through 4th at AJC.org slash Passport Global Forum. See you there. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Israel went to the polls this week to elect the members of the 21st Knesset and to choose a new prime minister. While a strong showing for Prime Minister Netanyahu's right-wing bloc means that there will likely be no change in the occupant of the Prime Minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem, the makeup of the Knesset is now vastly different, and we wanted to devote a full episode to breaking down what that means. This is a special Battle for Balfour. Joining us now is David Mikovsky, a former senior advisor to the Secretary of State's Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute. David, thank you for joining us. Oh, delighted. Delighted to be with you. Now, sometimes election night headlines can be misleading, right? There wasn't exactly a, you know, Dewey defeats Truman moment on Tuesday night, but the casual observer saw a tie between Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party and Benny Gantz's Blue and White party and heard both parties claim victory. Now, a a couple of days removed, can you help us figure out what are the accurate headlines from this election? The accurate headlines is that you have a a vibrant two-party competition in Israel. Uh, Until now, Netanyahu had pretty much dwarfed a lot of his competitors. It's not a left-right competition, and certainly not in American terms where left-right often tend to be about the role of government and society and how that's reflected in taxes, high taxes, low taxes. But really since 1967, it has been uh, about uh, kind of an Israeli internal Cold War about what to do about land taken in that 67 war. Uh, in, a, in a fight uh, that was often defensive with the Arabs. And, um, and that has often meant what to deal with the disposition uh, of, of the West Bank. Uh, but what's happened is that that left-right divide has morphed into a center-right divide. If the 90s, where left was more prominent, it was based on the idea that a two-state outcome would happen tomorrow morning, this, a, a number of factors has created a certain disillusionment and ultimate collapse of, of the left. It once had 56 seats and now is down to about 11. Because um, the public has, has seen a variety of events, starting from the Second Intifada in the year 2000 and the, the pullout from Lebanon and Gaza, where it did not end the conflict and the Syrian civil war three wars with Hamas and Gaza as well, that people said, oh, this, you know, giving up the land is not going to happen tomorrow. And uh, peace is not, you know, in the offing. And that's true, but 
what is also true is that not making strides in that direction will also impact the character of Israel as both a Jewish state, uh, of course, with equal rights for Jews and non-Jews alike, and a democratic state. And so the argument of the center was much more about how do you maintain the viability of an idea? How do you leave open options so you don't shut them now that impact future generations? And that, I think, was the subtext of the election. Yes, on the surface, it was about a referendum on Netanyahu's management of, the, of, of Israel. But I think beneath that, it was this divide between the center that says it might not be wise to settle areas that could be a future Palestinian entity because it shuts the door to any deal, uh, any agreement in the future, versus those who think that that should not be the priority, and this is also biblical patrimony and the like. So I think that that kind of divide uh, over center and right, as, as, there, as politics in Israel has realigned, is really significant. And uh, you had two big parties that finished with 35 votes each, 35 seats each. The name of the game is the pathway to 61. That's a bare majority in a 120-member Knesset. And uh, the right has an advantage because the ultra-Orthodox basically will always endorse whatever the right puts forward. And so I, I think you know, just because you add those things together, the right gets the 65 and the, the center left gets the 55, uh, people should not see that the, the whole country is, is of, one, of one cloth. It's really two, two big blocks, five seats either way tilted. And, um, you know, and Netanyahu is the next prime minister. But uh, I think the center is still a very vibrant idea, and it's not based on the old premises of the 90s, but it's based on a new reality of how do you put yourself in a certain direction that you maintain the character of the state that was intended by the founders uh, going back to 1948 when the state was established. Now, there were two, I mean, there were more than two new parties, but there were two new parties that made uh, big splashes during the uh, during the election campaign. Perhaps the, the two, you know, two of the three maybe most momentous things that everyone was was talking about as, as game changers during the, the campaign. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, at, at least in terms of the shaping, uh, the, the portion of, of the campaign that was the shaping of the parties, I'm thinking of Avi Gabay severing the leader of labor, severing right. labor's relationship to, to Tsipi Livni and, and her Hatsnua party. So setting that one aside, these two major earthquakes were Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chekhed leaving the Habayat Hayyud party the National Religious Party, and forming their own party called the New Right. Um, and this team-up, this kind of, you know, all-star cast of three generals plus Yair Lapid that was blue and white. And those two momentous events went in really different directions to the point that blue and white seems positioned, although it's it's this, you know, 
perhaps fractious coalition of, of slightly odd bedfellows, it tied the Likud for the largest party, and someone in there is going to be the opposition leader and, and perhaps quite a strong opposition leader. And on the other hand, the new right appears to, at 12.10 p.m. on Thursday, April 11th, appears to have not crossed the electoral threshold, meaning that Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked, two ministers in the past government and prominent ones, now won't be in the Knesset at all. Is this just what happens in parliamentary democracies, or, or do you see this as a, a particularly momentous shift? Right. You know, you mentioned about the, the three ex-generals, and I think they're, they embodied the center. You know, we're trying to say our whole life we've given to the security of Israel, and Netanyahu is not going to tell us uh, what security is. He uses ideology and the name of security, and we see these things as separate, and we were former all chiefs of staff. Um, and so, um, you know, they have a certain uh, gravitas, uh, certainly almost like a dream team in that regard. And I think that that explains how they they outperformed the pundits. You know, they people thought they got twenty eight, twenty nine seats, and they got thirty five, because I think the centrist idea is is alive. And I also think that the referendum on Netanyahu, uh, they embodied this belief that it's time for Netanyahu to step down. So, you know, they stood for something broader. I I think that in the other case of Bennett and Shaked. Uh, they were, you know, two very media-savvy politicians, but ultimately they really were part of a bedrock of the National Religious Party, and they split off and left the religious institutions that they, you know, that they were supposed to represent with a lot of debt and not a clear rationale ideologically on why this breakaway had to happen. And that created a backlash, a resentment against these two. Look, I think also, I mean, this is maybe a more controversial point, but I think what Netanyahu did in that final weekend of interviews last weekend was remarkable, is that he really kind of, you know, pulled the carpet, pulled the rug out from under some of his harder-right opponents because, you know, he used the A word of annexation, which until then had been their word, not his. And in so doing... He defames them, essentially. Yeah, I don't know what the final vote, maybe he'll limp over the line, Bennett and Shaked. But um, for the most part, um, you know, what is their rationale exactly if Netanyahu is using the language of annexation? I don't think he means it wholesale. I think he means a much more modified version. But even under a modified version, it has to happen under a context and things that also the Palestinians receive and not just Israel. So, you know, he took their thunder from them. And uh, I think that also explains that part and that they couldn't really explain why they left their other party. The religious parties believe, look, we're, you know, they'll say we're not a majority in this country and we can't afford the luxury of all these people splitting off and starting their own parties. So I think there was a backlash against the two of them. Again, they might limp across the finish line with these final vote counts, but um, it shows you what happens when you overreach. I want to come back to what you raised about annexation in a moment. But before I do, you know, you had mentioned earlier that the left and I, I think you were grouping together the Labor Party, which had kind of been the mainstream, you know, king of the left for generations and Meretz, which is the furthest left of the Zionist parties, um, that they're only going to have, it looks like, 11 seats in this 21st Knesset. You mentioned kind of, you know, emotional scarring, maybe, or just, you know, disillusionment on the part of the Israeli uh, electorate based off the second intifada and, and other kind of 
of continuing warfare between Israelis and Palestinians. Is this the end of the left or is this an opportunity for them to regroup, to return to first principles? What should we expect here? Is this a center-right country going forward or is, is the left going to rebound? No, it's a great question. I, I wish my answer was as good as the question. I mean, <laughs> the short answer is we don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the argument that says, you know, dump the Palestinian issue essentially and regroup as a social uh, activist party, really, they've already done that. I mean, in a certain way, they have kind of become a niche party of grassroots activism on socioeconomic lines. But the problem is, is that the, the people that should have been, you know, their supporters are not, they don't, it's like merits. Those people, they don't seem to get votes along the socioeconomic lines because the socioeconomic class that they say they're supporting tends to vote for Netanyahu because for them the issue is not economics but the security of the country and uh, foreign policy. And unless the public votes along socioeconomic lines, I don't know what they can do. Um, I just feel that that it's a double whammy for them. The one whammy is that they're kind of associated as the negotiations party in an era where there's no negotiations. And Sippy Livni, who kind of embodied that sense of negotiations, was herself unceremoniously and unfairly, in my view, but was kicked out and because she was viewed somehow as a liability. So on one hand, they're associated with the idea, they're trying to jettison that. And then at the same time, if you look at where the kind of the emotional heart of the party, it's this idea of activism on socioeconomics, but they don't seem to reach the audiences that they say they're trying to help. And I think part of it, and I hate to say it this way, but they're, they're somehow viewed as, you know, cut off from the cultural roots, uh, Jewish roots of the society. And it's, it's a trick on how to do it. I mean, there's more people that voted Shas, uh, on of the ultra-Orthodox who often also have poor people, but they, they somehow are able to tie socioeconomics into Jewish culture and, I, and, and religion. And, and, and for labor, that's kind of Israel's, along with merits, the most staunchly secular party. They're, they don't, they, they, they can't do it. They're just, their DNA doesn't allow that. And so, I don't know, I, I'm not too hopeful for them right now. I mean, they're, you know, the, the pendulum could swing back. My hope is that they would help reinvigorate the center, and which talks about strong security, but leaving open the door to uh, an understanding with the Palestinians. Even if you can't swing for the fences, you know, with a home run and solve the whole conflict, hit a solid single. I'm happy to go into details on what that means uh, on uh, keeping the door open that would make strides in the direction you want and maintain Israel's identity as a democratic and Jewish state, of course, with equal rights for all. Now, you tantalizingly referenced the, the A word before, annexation. During his campaign, Prime Minister Netanyahu promised his base that he would annex the settlements. Uh, generally, we think of politicians who keep their campaign promises to be kind of the noble ones. But maybe we don't feel that way, and certainly AJC does not feel that that annexation would would be would be a productive step. I, I have I have three questions for you. One, sure, um, is that for real or just campaign rhetoric? Next, 
what would that actually mean in the narrow sense of what kind of annexation is on the table? Um, And finally, what would it mean in kind of the broader sense in terms of future repercussions of such a decision? Right. No, great question. Look, I think if he really went through with a kind of indiscriminate annexation of every settlement, then you are creating a Bosnia on the Mediterranean. And I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, now, I think it was done more for political expediency to kind of steal the thunder from the hard right and um, to, you know, and, he, and it worked. In, in that regard, because the hard right did so poorly in this election. And the, ironically, there's really no really, yes, the Likud has passed resolutions, and yes, there's uh, petitions in the Likud, but for the most part, Netanyahu really rules the Likud, you know, and we saw it with this election, and he prioritizes his relationship with Trump. So I don't expect him to do any annexation before we see what happens with the Trump peace plan. And after the Trump peace plan, I think there the issue is, um, to what extent does he go to Trump and saying, look, I was willing to talk about this plan with Abbas, but he's rejected it. And I feel there should be consequences for saying no to the president of the United States. And I would like to talk to you about, uh, you know, a very modified version of this uh, in terms of block areas that even the Palestinian uh, plans uh, have said that some of these areas would be Israeli. Um, and so I think the idea of annexation, you know, it, it, it's all contextual. It depends what, you know, what is the broader package here. Uh, when people envisaged, and, uh, you know, I have a website, Settlements and Solutions, devoted to this interface between settlements and uh, peace plans, it, you know, contextual was, look, there'll be a, a two-state solution. There'll be an overriding uh, arrangement. And in part of that arrangement is that Israel will keep some of these settlements that are what we call the block settlements near Israeli urban areas. Eighty-five percent of Israelis over the green line, over the 67 line, live in eight percent of the West Bank that is closest to the old border uh, inside the security barrier and uh, 15% live outside it, while almost all the Palestinian West Bankers live outside the barrier. So you can say most Israelis live inside the barrier, and most of the Palestinians live outside the barrier. That sounds like there it is. Um, But I tend to think that the idea now would be let the Trump plan fail, and then I will pick up the pieces with Trump's green or yellow light and uh, to... um, to annex these blocks that even the Palestinians would understand would be part of Israel. The problem with that is going to be uh, a certain cherry-picking where you front-loaded all of the benefits, and people will say, it's not just you front-loaded the benefits and everything else will see, but you have, by shattering that taboo, and, you know, with a few of these blocks, you'll keep doing them uh, later and later, and then there'll be nothing left. Um, and so the question is, if, if that's really the route Trump wants to go down, then I think there should be, it should be a two-way street. And, uh, you know, Israel would forswear annexation in a lot of other places, would forswear building outside the blocks. Um, it, it's got to be in a way that advances the prospects of coexistence. So and to summarize, I don't think... You know, Netanyahu moves a, a muscle without 
Trump's approval on this. It's just too, it's too sensitive, and I don't think he moves a muscle till he sees if the Trump plan, fail, you know, wins or fails, you know, succeeds or fails. And if it fails, then he comes in with like a plan B to, to annex. And I think that should be done, you know, at a price. And if it's modified, um, but, you know, but it's got to be something. There's got to be something in it for the other side too. So I think it's everything here is contextual, and I think that's important uh, to realize. I certainly don't think what he said on the campaign trail of kind of a wholesale annexation is something that he wants. I don't see evidence that he's ever called for this, mm-hmm. but I think it was a pre-election maneuver to outflank the hard right and to defang them and, and, and to siphon off their voters. And to that extent, it worked. So, you know, that's where I think we are. We're not talking about a wholesale version. We'd be talking about a much more modified version. And only that is after Trump has tried and failed. And I think only that, if it happens, should be if there's some offsets of limitations, um, you know, something the Palestinians would gain by. So, you know, this would be seen as some sort of a package deal if, if as a plan B, if this, if this fails. David, your colleague, Rob Satloff, uh, also of the Washington Institute, published a piece yesterday with the headline, Trump must not let Jared Kushner's peace plan see the light of day. And the subheading, releasing a U.S. proposal that is bound to fail would legitimize Israeli annexation, give Saudi Arabia leverage and strengthen Iran and its allies. Um, is it safe to say, based on your last answer, that you would associate yourself with that perspective? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not... Look, the U.S. has swung for the fences three times. Clinton, 2000. Condoleezza Rice, 2007-8. Effort I was a part of with Kerry and Obama in 2013-14. I think these were all noble efforts. But whenever you swing for the fences and try to solve the whole conflict, the chances of striking out are greater. So what I'm trying to, to advocate would be something much more modest of trying to hit a solid single where each side does one thing that's hard for them. And that is for Israel, don't build outside the barrier that would shut down the door over time to any two-state outcome. Uh, Stay focused inside the barrier where most of the settlers live anyway. Most of the Palestinians live outside it. Most Israelis live inside it. Focus there. Don't focus outwardly at all. And for the Palestinians, have to do something hard for them, too, which is to stop payments to families of perpetrators of violence who people think if you do, you know, suicide bomb or other forms of violence, um, you know, this is something the PA wants, because the Palestinian Authority wants to, to incentivize people to help their families and the like. So I think it, it cuts at the core issue of each side. Is the Palestinian core fear is land. And the Israeli core fear is terrorism. And you've got to move on each of these fronts so we can get the publics uh, reengaged again in this process. They, don't, they become uh, skeptical and even downright cynical. So I, I think we try to achieve less in the United States, but we try to but actually achieve it. Uh, because whenever it's all or nothing in the Mideast, it's, it's nothing. So I, I worry that this Trump plan is another version of all or nothing. And uh, so, I mean, my views and Rob's views are very, very similar. Try something more modest, but something that is attainable. 
you are an American who has devoted your life to Middle East policy with an eye toward the role the U.S. can play in advancing peace. What does America, you know, you've told us what America should not do. I guess specifically I'm asking, what role should American Jews play now in helping to preserve the possibility of a two-state solution? Well, it's a great question. I mean, look, I want to say something, and I'm not here to, you know, to scare people. I'm, I'm worried that the American Jewish community is so focused exclusively on BDS. I think BDS is, is wrong. I'm against it. So please, I don't want to be misinterpreted. But I think BDS is child's play compared to what could be coming around the corner, which is uh, Palestinians saying either give us a state or give us the vote. Uh, and we're going to just say we've given up on a Palestinian state. We're throwing in the towel. You win. Forget two-state solution. Let's have um, a vote in, in Israel. And I think that's something Israel cannot accept. Uh, it cannot lose its character um, as a Jewish democratic state. But it'll put Israel on the horns of a dilemma in this country when you're trying to preserve bipartisanship on the issue of, of Israel. Um, you know, if there's not a solution, I don't know if it's 2021, 2022, 2023, I don't know. But I worry that some of these more marginal ideas of one person, one vote will become more politically, you know, more political salience in the American, you know, kind of political conversation. And uh, that will put American Jews in an impossible situation because who could be against it? But I think, therefore, it's really important uh, for American Jews to, to try to not just keep hope alive in a kind of rhetorical sense, of course, but to look for practical arrangements that says, okay, we can't solve this whole problem in one go, but let's see if we can, it's not a, we can't solve the conflict, but we don't have to manage the conflict. We can, you know, reduce the conflict, shrink the conflict. What can we do to reduce it to its minimum so the, that the parties are on a pathway to coexistence? I think that, to me, is the issue, and I think we should be looking for those pathways and encouraging the, any practical ideas in this regard. David, last question. I just want to bring us back to the election. You know, longtime listeners of AJC Passport will recall from our conversation with Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post that what happens now is there's this kind of, you know, horse trading where the prime minister or, you know, the first president Rivlin will reach out apparently to Prime Minister Netanyahu and ask him to try to form a coalition. And and he'll engage in this horse trading with leaders of parties to try to bring them in. And it seems that his natural allies are all lined up to help him form a new uh, coalition rather similar to to the last one. Um, Is there anything that we should be watching for in the coalition formation process that will be particularly interesting, whether relating to the portfolios, the the ministerial portfolios that certain people will assume, or the coalition agreement and what what policies it may put forward? What what should we be looking for? No, it's a great question. I think you know, this is not maybe the topic A about indictment or, um, the, you know, the issue if, is Netanyahu going to try to secure understandings that he could avoid indictment in this term or the annexation issue, which I think will be a function of the Trump peace plan. But the issue that I think had traditional interest to the American Jewish community and the American Jewish committee has been also the role of the ultra-Orthodox. And, um, you know, they have emerged as the 
biggest coalition partners to Netanyahu, uh, with two parties, each have eight seats. That's 16. It's not 35 like the Likud, but they are the biggest coalition partners uh, that Netanyahu has. And I, I think there'll be a real fascinating back and forth between them and Lieberman uh, on the issue of, of drafting Haredim. Um, it might not be what Lapid would have wanted by saying there'll be criminal implications if you don't, you know, join the army, but you pay a fine. Uh, but I think, you know, Lieberman will fight for that. But I think the American Jewish community is going to see, are there going to be other provisions in the coalition's principles that are going to have an impact on uh, the Israel-Diaspora relationship? Uh, and I think, you know, there's been such a, a backlash on the Kotel issue, uh, fighting prayer um, the last time around. And so I think People are going to look at that, you know, what are the ultra-Orthodox demands? Uh, yes, Likud did better than it has since 2003, and the smaller parties, none of them reached double digits. So, in theory, the bigger parties should be in, in, a, in a better position to push back on these uh, demands of the ultra-Orthodox. But, you know, the, the goal is who gets to 61, and everything is seen through that context. So... What I'm concerned about is do the ultra-Orthodox try to overplay their hand? Uh, I think, ironically, um, Lieberman, who sees himself as having a secular constituency of people from the former Soviet Union, you know, they're more secular. I mean, he'll be the one trying to push back. But how that dynamic plays out between Lieberman and the ultra-Orthodox over the role of religion in the next government, I think is going to be fascinating to watch. Well, David, thank you for joining us and, and sharing these insights. Folks, if you want more from David Mikovsky, um, you should follow him on Twitter at David Mikovsky. David, thank you very much. Delighted to be with you. Next up on the battle for Balfour is Avital Leibovich, director of AJC Jerusalem. Avital, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Steffi. Thank you for having me. Now, we at AJC have a very close working relationship with the Israeli government. Um, we have maintained that relationship through party switches, through different prime ministers, and Prime Minister Netanyahu has been no exception historically. Can you tell us what impact Netanyahu's re-election, though, may have on AJC's priorities in Israel? Well, I think uh, and I hope that the good relations that AJC has with the Prime Minister Netanyahu and other ministers will continue. However, we are looking at the Knesset, which uh, something like 50 people, people who will be Knesset members, will be changing. So we are looking at totally new Knesset members who are new to the parliamentary world, we will have to get to know them. We will have to introduce AJC to them. And hopefully we'll have uh, 50 additional MKs who will support AJC. <laughs> 50 new MKs means uh, 50 new possible friends. Exactly. Just out of curiosity, since I asked about Netanyahu and, and by implication his party, the Likud, what is our relationship like with the putative opposition leader, Benny Gantz, and his party, Blue and White? So first of all, we are not sure who will lead the opposition. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it hasn't been set yet. Uh, I'll remind you that Benny Gantz's party is consisting of three political factions. Mm 
I don't know if they will stay together mm-hmm. after the government is uh, adjourned. I'm not sure that will happen. And I'm not sure that Yair Lapid will not be the head of opposition yeah. because he has a lot more political experience than Benny Gantz. Um, Benny Gantz is actually my neighbor, and uh, <laughs> we have worked together in the, in the military for quite a long time, so I do know him well. And Lapid knows AJC uh, well as, as well. He has been our guest in Global Forum a few times, and uh, we have met with him many, many times. So uh, in the opposition, too, uh, we are keeping the AJC bipartisan tradition. Um, terrific. Now, prior to the elections, you wrote actually quite a stirring letter that you sent to the chairs of parties all across the Israeli political spectrum, or, or at least all across the Zionist political spectrum in Israel. I'm, I'm not sure if you sent it to the ultra-Orthodox uh, Haredim or to the Arabs, um, although I'm, I'm curious to hear. And you received a range of responses. Your letter was asking for their parties to come out and clearly embrace the necessity of a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, but more than that, of a strong relationship with the Jewish diaspora. Can can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write that and what the response was that you got from the different parties? So I sent this letter to all the Jewish parties in Israel because the primary concern was the issue of the distancing between the Israeli Jewish community and the Jewish diaspora, primarily the American Jewish diaspora. And um, reading different AJC polls year after year, I can see a huge gap, a major rift, which is deepening year after year. And I think this issue should be handled by the Israeli government, uh, of course, as well as by the American Jewish communities. But since I'm located in Israel, I took the opportunity, it's actually a window of opportunity right prior to the elections, and I wrote a letter to all the parties, the chairs of the parties, the chairpersons of the parties, and ask them to include the task of strengthening the connection between Israel and the diaspora in their party platforms. And I have to say, surprisingly and happily, that I received very positive answers from all the parties. Now, you may say, well, it's before the elections, and maybe they just gave promises. So the value, in my opinion, for the answers of these parties is that I will be able to return to them in the long run and check whether, you know, they are actually committed to what they promised. Um, I have all the letters uh, filed in my office, and uh, you can be sure that I'll be following up. I think that the average Israeli in the street is not significantly aware of this gap Uh, And I do think that uh, Israel is a strong point of connection and the main point of connection between Jews all over the world, and it should be uh, maintained this way. And this is why this is such a critical issue that we need to handle. As we say in English, you've saved the receipts and you'll be checking up on them. Exactly. And uh, there are many receipts here, which I hold in my hand. (laughs) Um, Now, let me ask specifically, because this is an issue of great concern to Jews across the U.S., the Western Wall Agreement. 
That was the agreement that Prime Minister Netanyahu, ostensibly on behalf of his government, reached with you know Jewish communities around the world to create a new egalitarian prayer space at the Western Wall. Um, and then eventually, after opposition from the Haredim, from the ultra-Orthodox in his government, the deal was canceled. This government, it seems, is going to look a lot like the last government, uh, maybe with a, a few parties missing who might not have crossed the threshold. But certainly the Haredim will have just as much power, if not more, as in the last government. Do we envision any room for progress on religion and state issues? So this government is actually will be actually quite different from the previous uh, government, in my opinion. For starters, the third largest party uh, will be the ultra-Orthodox parties. And of course, I'm combining here the two parties, the Shas, the Sephardic party, and Yadut HaTorah, the, Ashken- the Ashkenazi uh, ultra-Orthodox parties, bringing them to a total of uh, 15 mandates. Um, and then we have a new party which has never been in the government before, except uh, one faction of it, Yelapid's uh, faction, and the party is, of course, blue and white. Uh, we have a very weakening block of the Arabs, and we have an even weaker block of the labor left merits block, which is hardly 10, 11 mandates. So this is quite significant, and what it tells us is that the opposition in this next government will be a very weak one. As for the ultra-Orthodox, there are good news and bad news. The bad news, or rather more challenging news, that on all issues of religious pluralism, I think the hands of Netanyahu will be quite tight. But the good news are that if Netanyahu would wish to make progress uh, in different um, international relations issues, including the Arab world, then I assume he will not get any breaks from the ultra-Orthodox parties who traditionally prevent from entering those fields. So there is a good aspect to their presence in the government, but also concerning aspects to their presence. To sum it all up, what is AJC's advocacy work going to look like You know, in, in Jerusalem going forward? Has, has anything changed for us, or is this, you know, stay the course, keep up the good work, and, you know, go from here? I would say that we have a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, the first mission would be to get to know the 50 new MKs from all across the parties, from all across the political map. Uh, we'll meet with them. We'll make sure they know what AJC is all about. Maybe some of them uh, will be more engaged. Maybe some of them will brief some project interchange delegations that we bring to Israel. Maybe others will speak in our events. That's one issue. The second issue are the different ministers, of course. Uh, Obviously, the government uh, will uh, uh, be built in a different way. It's important for us to get to know the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Diaspora, Minister of Security, of Defense, uh, Internal Security, those kind of ministers who we may have ongoing relations with. And finally, all the committees in the Knesset, one of the main committees is the U.S.-Israel Relations Committee. And in previous governments, we were often invited to speak there and voice our positions. And uh, I'm hoping this will not change with this current government. So we will have to also 
deepen our committee resources. Look, I think that overall this is an opportunity for Netanyahu to leave a legacy behind him because this will be his final term as prime minister in Israel. And I'm sure that he will want to leave something behind. Um, so in that sense, I think we need to, uh, to stay open. I think that um, we haven't seen the last of the Israel-Arab world ties. And hopefully the next four years will pass in a safe and secure way without any war or operation. Well, Avital, I know that I'm not the only one who is glad to know that we have you running the show there over in Jerusalem. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these important insights. Thank you and Chag Pesach Sameach. To you as well. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? setbacks. Good for the Jews? If I had to pick, I'd say the nerdiest thing about me is that I went to space camp as a child. I was crazy about outer space and fascinated by the U.S. space program. I learned all about the Apollo program, and I was eager for America to return to the moon, to travel to Mars and beyond, though I wasn't exactly signing up for the ride myself. And so I have been one of the millions of people around the world whose imagination was captured by Space IL, the Israeli nonprofit created to complete the audacious mission of putting an Israeli lander on the moon. That's how Breshit was born. Two months ago, Israel launched a small spacecraft named Breshit, intended to reach the moon. Last week, Israel became just the seventh country on Earth to successfully put a spacecraft into lunar orbit. The trip took so long because Israeli engineers had plotted out a route reminiscent of the children of Israel's biblical sojourn through the desert. The circuitous route was designed, specifically, to make optimal use of gravity and require minimum fuel. Today, though, instead of the hoped-for smooth landing, Bereshit crashed into the moon, a seemingly tragic end for the little spaceship that could. The history of science is filled with setbacks, however, and the magic is in not giving up. Before you know it, there will be a Jewish flag waving on the moon. Now that, that would be good for the Jews. Last week, we announced that AJC's Show Up for Shabbat campaign was named an official nominee for the 23rd Webby Awards. Show Up for Shabbat united millions of people to honor the victims of the attack on Pittsburgh's Jewish community and sent a powerful message. Hate will not prevail. You can help reinforce that message today by going to ajc.org slash webbyvote or click the link in our show notes and cast your vote for Show Up for Shabbat. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org slash passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. 
Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.